Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Our guest today embodies one of the earliest objectives of Australian true crime, in that the event she's here to talk about has long since fallen from the news. But she joins us to talk about the many ways it's affected and still affects her family. Sarah is a professional woman. She's married with young children and she takes great pride in the ordered nature of her life. It's a far cry from the chaos left behind for her father's generation by her grandparents, whose marriage came to a violent end in the 1950s. As you'll hear, Sarah's peaceful existence has taken a lot of work on her part. The family continues to be impacted by the chaos, dysfunction and trauma of the gruesome family headline from three quarters of a century ago. I think I was around seven or eight when I was told that my paternal grandfather had murdered my paternal grandmother. It was my biological mother that told me and that my parents had been long since divorced by then. Their relationship was quite short. 
it would be what we would now refer to as a shotgun wedding. And they had a fairly dysfunctional but short relationship and then they divorced. I mean, your father came from a family that that it doesn't get much more dysfunctional than your father murdering your mum. And that's his background. How old was he when that happened? He was three. Oh my God. He was three. So he's one of five children. The youngest was two and the oldest was nine. It came out in the murder trial that my biological grandfather also grew up in an orphanage and I know nothing about his circumstances. We're talking right now about William, William Francis Godwin. So these two got married, William and Mary. In about 1940, 1941. So in that stage they're in their very early 20s? 24, I think. Okay. And then within that 10 years or so they had five kids. A few different people, including the murderer and the family of my paternal grandmother, all said that their relationship was pretty problematic, violent. She spent long periods of time away from him. He called it running away, um, up to about seven months on one occasion. But then at some point there's a final argument, yeah, where where William shoots his wife, Mary. Do you know if the children were present during that? They were definitely all in the house at the time. The timeline's a little bit fuzzy, but it appears that it happened around 9 o'clock in the morning. The cousin of my grandmother, who I spoke to in 1999, said that he was under the impression that the, the two eldest children actually witnessed the shooting. They were the two that helped with the subsequent burial. It's horrific, isn't it? It really is. William sold the house as quickly as possible, the house in Collin Road, East Oakley, after he had he and the two eldest had buried Mary under the floorboards. He sold the house. Yes, sold the house, moved to Richmond, where, where did he say Mary was? Did he just sort of try and pass it off as she's she's just taken off again? Don't know. Uh, yeah, no doubt. If anyone was asking questions, the line would have been, "Well, she's run off on me again." And because that wasn't uncommon, it was a very plausible explanation. And it wasn't until the new owners of the house complained of a smell that could not be put down to the nearby abattoir that there were questions asked. And he says he gave himself up. He basically went mad. He thought that he was drinking profusely following the move and said that he could essentially hear voices uh, and that he could see people across the road that weren't there and they were talking to him or surveilling him. And once the questions were being asked about the smell in the house and he came clean and he confessed. He received a a death sentence initially. The jury, although they found him guilty of her murder, I think they bought his story that it was an accident. And so they said, "Mm, we recommend that clemency or leniency. And so the result of that was that instead of receiving a death sentence, it was commuted to life. 
And at the time, our life sentence was 15 years, and he served about 11 and a half of the 15-year sentence. I think the real tragedy is that this one event had a very significant impact on all of the generations. So the oldest child had a disability and died fairly young. The other four children are sent to orphanages and they were split up. They weren't together. After he died, all of the children who'd had relationships in their earlier years, all of their marriages had broken down. Some had committed abuse against their own children and the two oldest brothers committed suicide. Oh, it's heartbreaking. So there's two left, two remaining. Oh, my goodness. Of all five of Miriam Williams' children, there's two remaining. Yeah. One of whom is your biological father. Yes. The fact that you refer to your parents as your biological parents, I think, says it all. Uh, well, I guess it's hard. I have to differentiate because throughout all of this, I've been incredibly fortunate to be welcomed into another family. And I never want anybody to think that when I say my mother or my father, I'm talking about the the sane, well-adjusted people that looked after me because I've spent the majority of my life with the more functional. Who are they? How did you find them? How'd they find you? My biological mother met this man in a bookshop. He worked at the bookshop and they had similar uh, interests. And he mentioned that, I think she might've said, I have a daughter. And he said, oh, I've, you know, I've got a daughter and a son. And they established that their daughters were the same age. And so we were introduced while they went off to do their hobbies in the occult. I think at the time, um, my biological mother referred to herself as a white witch. Sure. I mean, she wouldn't come home and I was terrified of being left alone. And so if child protection in this modern time caught wind of what was happening, I would have been taken away. So while the father was practicing his occult with my mother and, uh, you know, a group of other people, this was not just the two of them, his wife, then wife, uh, was at home looking after the children and being a normal person. And she was the most wonderful role model that you could ever wish for. And I just adored this woman because she was everything that I wanted and didn't have. I started spending weekends with them. I spent some school holidays with them because my biological mother was still working at the time. I spent Christmases with them sometimes. And then from that part-time relationship that started when I was sort of seven turning eight, by the time I was 14 and I got kicked out of home, I went and lived with her. I think we should acknowledge before we go any further, your mum, your biological mother, she took her own life, right? She she did. She, uh, at 57 years old, she was the same age as my paternal grandfather. He died at 57. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? 
Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Because I hadn't had any contact with her since 1994, I wasn't aware whether or not she was still alive. Oh, wow. Okay. You really no contact. Yes, but it turns out that when someone dies, you do eventually get notified. My understanding is that after the suicide, the parents were contacted, the body could not be uh, visually identified because of the mode in which the suicide took place, which was uh, carbon monoxide poisoning in a sealed room, and it was the height of summer. It was 40 degrees. So after a couple of days, the body is very significantly decomposed and a DNA, like a mouth swab, was obtained from her mother, my grandmother, and that they used the mitochondrial DNA to confirm her identity. And so a couple of weeks before I'm about to start this new job, I'm at my you know current workplace, I get a phone call, and they say to me, uh, we need to tell you that your mother has died. And I clap my chest and stop breathing because I think they're talking about the person who has raised me and I'm just frozen. I ha- I can't breathe. My ears are ringing. But I, I also somehow think he used my previous surname and then he said the name and I went, oh, her. to which you know he was quite confused but then I was sort of being told that I'd need to yeah clean out the house and I I was thinking why do I have to do this and I was pretty angry because this woman terrorized my childhood I was absolutely in fear so much of the time because she was so volatile and unpredictable. I wonder what would have happened if you'd just said no, if you'd just said everything you just said. This woman terrorised my childhood. For that reason, I have cut off contact with her. I haven't seen her in 20 years. I'm not dealing with her. I think eventually the Department of Housing probably would have just come in with a large skip bin, thrown everything away and cleaned the the premises. Yeah. So why didn't you let them do that? What (laughs) What made you go over there? I guess for answers, for proof that she was actually dead and also because knowing what, you know, this government bureaucracy is like, that it would sit there for a year and there was probably a very long list of people that would be absolutely busting to get into a property and really if it could be freed up and used, then why shouldn't it? But I guess I was not prepared for the fact that everything would be left exactly as it was. So there was a barbecue with coals in it on a pane of glass on the floor. There was sticky tape over the air vents and there a door snake had been placed behind the door to keep the room sealed for the process. There was a, a body identification tag on the bedside table There was a a small black 
box with, I guess, like the, the shell of the pill. So whatever substance was inside had been, was missing. Oh, so she'd sedated herself. Presumably she... taken. Yeah, yes. right. Uh, with a straw. So there was mm-hmm. a straw and a large number of empty capsules. And there was just this really revolting smell in the room. But I went in, I spent 10 days getting rid of everything. It was full of crap. Yeah, what did you learn about who she'd been before she died? There were a lot of diaries that, you know, conceded that she'd basically come to the end. She, in her words, fucked up her life and had isolated herself from everyone, her family, her friends, her employer. She was on work cover for a bullying claim and there was documents about she was just fighting with everybody. So there was the neighbours and then there was, you know, she bought this desk and she wasn't happy with the final product and she was taking the desk builder to VCAT. And I felt more compassion than I expected to. You know, I didn't sort of think, oh, good, which the me of 20 years ago probably would have. Really, it just made me feel sorry for her. So how do you then end up you? And when I say that, (laughs) when I say that, I say that knowing that you are, uh, you know, you've had a very successful career, you yourself are the co-head of a successful family, by which I mean, you know, you're raising kids, you're in a loving relationship, and you come from generations of trauma generations of it on both sides, alcoholism, mental ill health. Yeah. You've got suicide on both sides. How are you, you? Well, years of therapy for one, but I've had good role. You know, I've had people that believed in me who stood by me and provided a really good role model of of what it is to live a good life and how to navigate conflict and things, because I didn't have any conflict resolution skills as a teenager, because I hadn't seen any. All I'd seen was blowing up, yelling, screaming, physical violence, cutting people off and never speaking to them again. And it took me living with a family that had those disagreements and resolved them without cutting each other off or hitting each other or doing things, you know, negative ways of reacting to conflict to realise that, oh, there is actually a another way to to navigate life. And you don't have to just fall out with somebody and never speak to them again. It's You can actually say to people that really hurt my feelings or when you did this, I felt X. And I'm so, so grateful to have the family that I have. I have an amazing partner. You know, a controversy in my house is when the whites get put in with the coloured washing. You know, no one's ending up under the floorboards. Thank you to our guest today, Sarah. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.